Jesus cares. If you've been beat up by life, you feel like you're a bruised reed, or maybe you feel like your flame is about to go out, you're a flickering wick, Jesus cares. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, he cares. Whatever it is that has happened to you in your life, he cares. We don't merely just say that here at Grace. It's not something, well, I have to believe that because I'm a Christian. No, we believe that. And some of you need to hear that at the very beginning of the sermon, that Jesus cares about you and everything that's happening in your life and that you're going through right now. We're continuing in Mark chapter 3, and in this section, Mark wants us to know that there were many people who did not understand Jesus. We will continue to see great crowds following Jesus, but like the Gospels record, many people will eventually turn away, like John tells us in chapter 6 of his Gospel. Some people follow Jesus because they truly sense how caring and kind and gentle and compassionate and loving he is. And others follow Jesus just because they're interested in the miracles that he performs. They've never seen stuff like this. It's fascinating. And some people, like the ones we'll see in our passage today, either think Jesus has lost his mind or he's in cahoots with the devil. But don't miss this. As we saw two weeks ago, demons would try to reveal the identity of Jesus. And as these demons would cry out, you're the son of God, keep in mind that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were there in the crowd. They heard these demons say, you're the son of God. And so did Jesus' family. And yet, they are the ones in our passage today that will say that Jesus has lost his mind. And they are the ones that will say that he is the devil incarnate. His brothers and sisters have seen Jesus heal people and cast out demons, and yet they think he's crazy. Jesus' family thinks that he has lost his marbles. And the Pharisees have seen Jesus heal people and cast out demons, and yet they think he's in cahoots with the devil. They think he's working hand in hand with Satan. And that's exactly what we'll see in this section of Mark's gospel today. We'll see Jesus interact with all kinds of people. Some will be drawn to him. Some cannot get close enough to him. And some will doubt him. Some will think he has lost his mind. And some will think he's the devil incarnate. And so Jesus will interact with a large crowd of followers, with his friends, with his family, and with the Pharisees. And the people who should have known better, the insiders, his family, and the Pharisees, the people who knew him best, or the people who should have connected all the dots in the Old Testament, they are the people who resist him. And it's the outsiders, and the outcasts, and the misfits who are the ones can't get close enough to him. So look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, and hear the word of the Lord. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
So after calling the disciples what we looked at last week, Jesus returned home and the crowd heard that he's back in Capernaum and they show up again. And it was so crowded, everyone is squished together, just pushing and shoving. They're trying desperately to get close enough to Jesus that it's actually impossible for Jesus and the disciples to eat. So imagine trying to eat a burrito from Chipotle and people are shoving and pushing and trying to sit next to you. That's Jesus here. He can't even eat his burrito in peace. And then Jesus' family hears about this great crowd that has shown up. And what do they do? They try to seize him. And they tell him he needs to cease and desist what he's doing. So they start walking, his brothers and sisters, pushing their way through the crowd, saying, excuse me, excuse me, trying to get to Jesus. And what are they saying to one another as they walk through the crowd? Something like this. Our brother has lost his mind. He's crazy. I heard someone call him the son of God. That's crazy. He's our brother. He slept in the top bunk in the bedroom. He's not God. He's crazy. He's lost his marbles. He's not in his right mind. He's off his rocker. He's not right in the head. He's loco. He's got a few loose screws. He's cray-cray. Jesus' siblings, his family, his brothers and his sisters should have known better. But they didn't believe, as John tells us in chapter 7 of his gospel. They should have believed, and they will believe later on. We know that they do believe later on. We find out about that in Acts chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But his family, of all people, should have connected the dots. Jesus was the real deal. And yet they think he's lost his mind. And they try to seize him. They think he's out of his mind. They want to grab him and shut this gospel thing down. But before we leave verse 20, stop and think about how Jesus felt. Think about the pain he felt as his family tries to seize him and tell him that this funny business needs to stop how hurtful they were. Zach Aswine says, Humanly speaking, there are very few critiques more painful than those leveled at us by those who have known us longest. Extended family perceptions, hometowns, and ministries are a mess. It was this way even for our Lord in the fullness of his humanity. But even here, grace doesn't quit. Even Jesus felt the sting of critique by people who knew him so well. So think of the pain and the sadness that he surely experienced when his family very publicly called him a madman. These are people who knew him for some 30 years and they suddenly turn on him. Jesus is getting the proverbial knife stab in the back. So understand this, Jesus experienced a broken heart too. Jesus had people close to him betray him. As Mark told us last week in verse 19, Judas, one of his closest friends, one of his disciples, would betray him. And then here we have his family who turn on him. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed by somebody so close Jesus knows what it is like to get stabbed in the back by someone who is so close to you. 
He knows what it is like to have your heart broken by someone so close to you. Jesus knows what it feels like to have painful critiques leveled at you by someone really close to you. And so if you're here today and you've been hurt and you've been stabbed in the back by someone that you were very close to, Jesus understands. Jesus understands exactly how you feel. So you are not alone in your pain. Jesus knows what it feels like to get walked on by those closest to him. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows exactly how you're feeling. The pain that's still there. Maybe it's been years and the pain is still there. And the sorrow and the sadness of those broken relationships. And so where do you go when you've been hurt? Where do you go when you've been betrayed You go to the man of sorrows. That's what Isaiah calls him in chapter 53. You pour your heart out to him and tell him exactly how you're feeling and tell him exactly how it hurts and and why it hurts. And he listens. You go to the one who was acquainted with grief. Jesus knows the pain of a heart that has been pierced by a small blade which was wielded by close friends and loved ones. He knows. He cares. Jesus cares. And so Jesus is hurt and wounded and stabbed in the back by people who know him well, and yet what is he still doing? He's still ministering to hurting people. Why? Because grace doesn't quit. Jesus gets stabbed in the back, and yet Mark tells us that he keeps ministering to the bruised reeds and the flickering or smoldering wicks who have gathered around him. Actually, Matthew tells us that in his gospel, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Look at Mark chapter 3 now at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So as large crowds gather inside and outside of Jesus' house, the Pharisees are there with a notepad, taking notes and closely watching every move of Jesus. And when they see him casting demons out of people, they come to the conclusion that Jesus must be in cahoots with the devil. And not just in cahoots, they say in verse 22 that Jesus himself is possessed by a demon, and it's because of that and through the devil's power that he is able to perform all of these exorcisms. They actually think that he has an unclean spirit living inside of him. Now, Think about this. Jesus' family is calling him crazy. He has lost his marbles. And the Pharisees are saying that Jesus has a demon living inside of him. And yet, how does Jesus respond? 
he tells them a story. I love that about Jesus. I'll just tell you a story, and it will prick your heart. So Jesus tells the Pharisees a parable about how impossible and absurd it would be for Satan to cast out Satan. His point is that a divided kingdom cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand. So Jesus hears what they're saying, and he responds to the Pharisees by making these two points. Number one, if Jesus is casting demons out by the power of the devil, then the devil's kingdom is divided. It cannot stand. It will crumble from within. The devil wants to possess people. He wants to cause pain. He wants to cause destruction. So if Jesus is working with Satan, why is he healing people and setting them free? It doesn't make any sense. A house, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. His second point is that if Satan is to be defeated, his sphere of power must be bound and stopped. And that is exactly why Jesus came as 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Remember what we saw back in chapter 1? Jesus is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then he defeats the devil in the wilderness temptations. That's when Jesus bound the strong man, and why he can, and why he is now cleaning house. Jesus is here, the kingdom of God is here, and he is plundering the strong man, that is the devil, the strong man's dominion. That's why Jesus came preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. That's why he said in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is advancing in the world through the gospel. That is Jesus binding the strong man and plundering his house. The kingdom of God advancing in this world through the proclamation of the gospel is Jesus binding the strong man and plundering his house. So when Jesus casts out demons, the kingdom of God is advancing. When Jesus casts out demons, he is reversing the curse that Adam brought on this world. So the devil is on a leash, if you will. And every time Jesus casts out a demon, he is shortening that leash kingdom of God is advancing. It's a shortening of the devil's chain. But why does Jesus go from talking about binding the strong man to talking about the forgiveness of sins? What does binding the strong man have to do with the forgiveness of sins? Why go from there to there? Here's why. Because when Jesus says that he binds the strong man, he means that he can grant the forgiveness of sins. Make the connection here. The forgiveness of sins, explained in verse 28, is a result of Jesus' binding the strong man, which is recounted in verse 27. When Jesus says that he binds the strong man, he means that he can grant forgiveness of sins. Here's his point. Because Jesus is stronger than the strong man, the devil, he can offer unfettered forgiveness of every sin for those who believe in him. Jesus will forgive any and all sin for those who believe in him, those who trust in his finished work. Jesus will forgive any and all sin except for one. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they are saying he has an unclean spirit. So the million dollar question is, what is the unpardonable sin? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If there's one sin that cannot be forgiven, it would be really good to know what that sin is, wouldn't it? That question has been answered in many, many ways, in books and in commentaries, and I don't want to spend a bunch of time on all of the options. What what I want to do is tell you a few things that I believe it isn't and then tell you what I think it is. When we ask, what is the unpardonable sin? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? When we ask that question, it is important to emphasize that it is not the same thing as grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit, which Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 4 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. When Paul says that we should not quench the Holy Spirit, when Paul says that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit, he's writing to believers when he says that, and not to hard-hearted opponents of the gospel, which is who Jesus is addressing here. Can believers quench or grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes. Can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I would say no. Let me say that again. Can believers quench or grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, but can we blaspheme the Spirit? I would say no. Jesus tells us here in verse 29 that there's one sin that cannot be forgiven. So how come Jesus can say that there's one sin that cannot be forgiven? I mean, isn't the good news of the gospel that the blood of Jesus covers all sin, all kinds of sin, all types of sin, small sins, big sins, red sins, little white lies? Isn't it the good news of the gospel that it doesn't matter what you have done, you can be forgiven? Yes, that no matter how much of a mess you have made of your life, that you can find forgiveness in Jesus? Yes, don't we believe that here? Yes. If we didn't, I would be in a lot of trouble. Yes, yes, yes. The overwhelming good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness for all sin. What a gracious and merciful God we serve. Anyone and any sin can be forgiven. All sins and all blasphemies will be forgiven of every person who repents. Jesus is that good. The overwhelming good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness for all sin except one. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's forgiveness for all sin except one. Look again at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Can blasphemers be forgiven? Yes. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.13 that before he came to faith in Jesus, he was a blasphemer. There is forgiveness for blasphemers. So blasphemy in and of itself is not the unpardonable sin. And the unpardonable sin is not murder. And it's not adultery, as some people have proposed. Those sins are forgiven. Now, some people believe that the unpardonable sin is suicide. And to that, I would say, no, no, no. 
Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus' blood covers all sin. Suicide can be and is forgiven. Jesus forgives people who commit suicide. Jesus forgives people who commit suicide. Sadly, there have been people throughout church history who have actually killed themselves because they thought they had committed the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Spirit. Jesus can forgive all sins, he says, except one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so the million-dollar question is, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I side with Augustine on these matters. And since it was just Black History Month, I am thrilled to mention Augustine, one of my favorite black theologians. He was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the 350s and the early 400s. And Augustine said that the blasphemy of the Spirit was a rejection of the gospel. It's unbelief, he said. It's not trusting in Jesus. Every other sin can and will be forgiven if someone trusts in Jesus. It's those who never trust in Jesus who will never experience the forgiveness of sin. Unbelief can't be forgiven. If you die without faith in Jesus Christ, with unbelief in him, you're not believing in him, without trust in his finished work on the cross, then there's no forgiveness. There's no second chance. There's no preaching of the gospel after you die. There's no good news offered to people in hell. Listen, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you, and if your faith isn't rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and as your prophet, priest, and king, then you're not forgiven. That's unbelief. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jared Wilson says, The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin with a gravity to it that sets it apart from every other sin. It is not especially clear that Jesus is saying the scribes have already committed this unpardonable sin, but he is certainly warning them about it. In some sense, he is saying You fellows are on a very dangerous track. By attributing the work of Christ to the work of Satan, they are committing the unpardonable sin of eternally rejecting Jesus. I believe the unforgivable sin is this, enduringly unrepentant resistance to Jesus. Because it is the Holy Spirit's job to glorify Jesus, to permanently reject Jesus is to blaspheme the Spirit. To ultimately place your allegiance against Christ And remember, not to align with him is to essentially align against him will not be forgiven. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. They were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. But underneath that statement, underneath all of that, was unbelief. By saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit, they were saying that they did not believe that he was the spirit-empowered Messiah. But Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, like we saw back in chapter 1. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus was a phony. What Jesus was actually doing was the worst kept secret in the Old Testament. What Jesus is doing here in the Gospels is actually the worst kept secret in the Old Testament because it was all over the place. 
All over the Old Testament scriptures, the religious leaders, they of all people should have connected the dots. They knew what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus was doing what he was doing in healing people and casting out demons precisely because he was the anointed one that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied about. That's what the name Christ means. It means anointed one. It's not just his last name. He's the anointed one. He's the spirit anointed one that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 42. And the Pharisees did not believe it. It was right before their eyes in living color. And they refused to connect the dots. They knew the prophet Isaiah. They were the only people who had access to a copy of Isaiah's prophecy. People didn't have their own copies of the scriptures back then. They had access. They should have made the connection. They knew that the Messiah would do what Jesus was doing, but they did not believe that he was the Messiah because he was not fitting into the mold that they had made for him. It was unbelief. It's rejecting Jesus. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They are rejecting Jesus as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And that's exactly why Jesus' family is doing what they're doing here in this chapter. Jesus' family thought he lost his marbles, that he was out of his mind. They do come to faith later, but at this point, his family does not believe in him. And they, like the Pharisees, are actively rejecting Jesus. Listen, if you're here today and you're a Christian and you feel like a bruised reed and you're broken and wounded and maybe you feel like that you have committed the unpardonable sin, Jesus is reaching out to you today to comfort your heart. If you are a Christian, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. If you are a Christian, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. And that means that if you are a Christian and you are in union with Christ and you are trusting in his finished work and not your works, then you do not have to worry about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers commit this sin, not believers. Let me say that again. Unbelievers commit the unpardonable sin, not believers. Jesus can and does forgive sin because he has bound the strong man, the devil, and he is setting captives free. But what the devil wants to do is to inflict pain and misery on people. The devil wants you to worry about this, Christian, to worry about, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I don't know. He wants you to do That thrills him. That makes him dance. The devil wants you to worry and stress over the fact that you have committed the unpardonable sin. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, struggled with this. He was under such heavy weight, it was literally killing him. He was so worried that he had committed the unpardonable sin that it was literally killing him. Martin Luther struggled with this too. There was even an English Puritan named John Child who was so distraught over this thinking he had committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that he actually killed himself. John Child 
this Puritan, was being counseled and comforted by his friend, Hercules Collins. And Hercules Collins told him, you have not committed this sin, and yet child could not shake the despair. And so child took his friend by the hand, and he said to him, I conjure thee by the eternal God that thou take care of my wife and children. I would give 10,000 worlds for a God and often, and he stops himself. Notice that, he stops himself. The pain is so deep in his heart. He says, I want to believe that there's a God who's so merciful and gracious and kind to me. I want to believe that, but then I think about my family. And he goes on to say, I don't pray, my wife doesn't pray, my children, nobody prays. Listen to it again, and notice how he catches himself. He really wants to believe that there's a God who's loving and kind and gentle towards sinners who are so messed up. Can't listen. I conjure thee by the eternal God that thou take care of my wife and children. I would give ten thousand worlds for a God. And often, oh, what an ungodly family have I. Husband cannot pray, wife cannot pray, children cannot pray, servants cannot pray. While others are serving their God, we do nothing. And that was the last recorded dialogue between Hercules Collins and his despondent friend, the Puritan John Child. And October 13, 1684, John Child hanged himself in his house and left behind a wife and four children. That's what the devil wants. He is ruthless and he is destructive and he doesn't care. And when the devil sees a bruised reed and when the devil sees a flickering wick, someone who is wounded, what does he do? He wants to destroy them. He wants to rough them up. He wants to wreak havoc. Listen, if you're like John Child and you struggle with suicidal thoughts or if you want to take your life, please call someone. Do not believe the devil's lies. Call the suicide hotline. Here it is, 1-800-273-8255. I keep it in my phone. Write it down. Call it if you need to. Just talk to someone. Did you know that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S.? Every year, almost 45,000 people die by suicide. On average, there's 123 suicides per day in our country. So if you struggle with suicidal thoughts, you want to take your life, please call someone. Call me. Call one of the pastors. Just talk to someone. You are safe here. This is a safe place. We're not going to raise our eyebrows. We're not going to roll our eyes. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to condemn you. This is a safe place. You can tell someone here if you struggle with this. We will listen. We will walk with you through this, you're safe. Don't go through with it. I care. We care here at this church. The devil doesn't care. The devil doesn't give a rip about you. He hates you with a passion that is boiling, white, hot, boiling hatred of you. And nothing would bring a smile to his face more than to see one of us take our life because the pain is so deep. I understand the pain is deep. I have wounds that I'm still trying to process. But Jesus cares. 
When the devil sees a bruised reed or a flickering wick, someone who is wounded, someone who is heartbroken, someone who is sad, what does he do? He wants to destroy them. It's like, like you have a broken foot and people, the doctor would want to come and gently hold it and try to diagnose, where does it hurt? What's wrong? The devil comes, you think your foot's broken? Let me see that foot. That's what he does to broken people. He wants to destroy them. But Jesus comes as the good shepherd. And Jesus gently handles bruised reeds and flickering wicks. And that's exactly what he's doing in our passage today as he's dialoguing with these hard-hearted Pharisees. You know what Matthew says in his gospel? Right before he brings up the binding of the strong man, Matthew actually quotes Isaiah chapter 42, the passage about bruised reeds and flickering wicks, thus proving that this is exactly what Jesus was doing in his ministry. Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And then after he quotes Isaiah, Matthew shares the story of the binding of the strong man. Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah who binds the strong man and cares for broken, hurting people. Jesus binds the strong man who tries to blow out faintly burning wicks. Jesus binds the strong man who tries to rough up bruised reeds. And bruised reeds are the perfect imagery for weak, wounded people. This is not a a sturdy tree branch or stem, but it's a reed. It's, It's flimsy. It was weak. It was breakable. And it was vulnerable to every puff of wind or pelt of rain or any careless passerby. It was at risk of being crushed and trampled on. And Jesus takes up the cause of the fragile, the frail, and the vulnerable reed. And he cares for it. He's gentle. That's exactly what he's doing here in Mark. That's why people are flocking to him, because they know he cares. And it's the same with the smoldering wick. The fire has nearly gone out. The spark remains, but it's weak. It's wavering. It's exposed. And the slightest breath would snuff it out. Now, let's put our gentle Savior into that picture. Jesus comes to the rescue, rescue of the smoldering wick. He sees the little spark that has almost all but disappeared, and he loves it, and he determines it will not be snuffed out. He will guard it until it flames up again. That's exactly what he's doing here in Mark. It's exactly why people are flocking to him. Pharisees went around beating people up at the law, saying, get your act together. And that's why people are flocking to Jesus because he pronounced good news. You're loved, you're forgiven, you're free. I spoke to someone yesterday and they said, do you have your sermon finished? And I said, yes. And they said, are you gonna tell your people to get your act together? They don't live here. This was on the phone. They said, are you gonna tell your people to get their act together? And I said, no, I'm gonna tell them that Jesus cares because that's what they need to hear. Jesus is gentle. He's not like the cold-hearted spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees. They trampled on bruised reeds. They blew out smoldering wicks, but not Jesus. He's close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18 says he, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It's emphatic in Hebrew. Near Yahweh is. Near the Lord is. The Hebrew word that's used there for near, karov, it's used in the book of Ruth twice to describe Boaz, the near relative whose responsibility it was was to come and intervene in the troubles of a family member and take their troubles on as his own and then do something about it. Jesus is near you right now, Christian, and your troubles are his troubles. Your pain is his pain. Your sadness is his sadness. Your sorrow is his sorrow. 
and your brokenness is his brokenness. He takes it upon himself and says, this is our problem now, and I'm going to do something about it. He's close to the brokenhearted. Commenting on Matthew 12, 20, where Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, Charles Spurgeon said this, Herein is grace and graciousness. Herein is love and loving kindness. How it opens to us the compassion of Jesus, so gentle, tender, considerate. We need never shrink back from his touch. We need never fear a harsh word from him. Though he might well chide us for our weakness, he rebukes not. Bruised reeds shall have no blows from him and the smoldering wick no damping frowns. Pharisees should have known better. They should have connected the dots about who Jesus was. They knew Isaiah. They should have connected the dots and said, he's doing what Isaiah prophesied. He's healing people. The Spirit of God is upon him. He's caring for bruised reeds and flickering wicks. But they didn't see it. But the crowds did. They were flocking to Jesus from all over. And yet as Jesus is surrounded by all these people, all of these bruised reeds and smoldering wicks who have gathered around the most compassionate and caring man that has ever lived, Jesus is the most compassionate and caring man who has ever lived. And as these broken people have gathered around him, Jesus still has to deal with the naysayers, his family, and the Pharisees. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so the crowds are there again. And I think the smile and laughter of Jesus has drawn them in. And then Jesus' family shows up and they call for him. And the people say, your family's outside. And Jesus says, no, my family is here. It's those who do the will of God. It's those who believe in him. Those who do not believe in Jesus will not be forgiven. They have committed the unpardonable sin, unbelief. But those who do believe in Jesus, those who trust in his life, death, and resurrection, those are the ones that Jesus says, this is my family. The ones who do the will of God. Well, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, my family are the people who do the will of God? It's those who believe in him. To do the will of God is to believe in him, to trust in him alone as a spirit-anointed and spirit-empowered Messiah. To do the will of God is to believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus says in John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that day. Whoever looks to Jesus will be saved and resurrected to eternal life. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you look to Jesus today, you will be saved. If you open up the empty hands of faith and repent and turn from your sins and turn from living for yourself, you will be saved. You'll belong to Jesus. You'll belong to God's family. God will be your father. Jesus will be your older brother. And who doesn't want Jesus for an older brother? Jesus is the greatest big brother that's ever lived. Whoever does the will of God, whoever looks to Jesus, will be saved from everlasting punishment in hell. Jesus was extending a welcome to the Pharisees here. He was offering true rest to the self-righteous, but they had to believe. Jesus is offering that to you today. It doesn't matter where you are at in life. Jesus welcomes you. Will you come? 
Ralph Davis said, Jesus also welcomes religious sinners. Some smell of pigs and some smell of church pews. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you're like the younger brother in Luke 15 and you smell like pigs, come. Jesus will embrace you. If you're like the older brother in Luke 15 and you smell like church pews, come. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus will have you. Demon-possessed, prostitute, religious churchgoer, tax collector, political zealot, doubting Thomas, fisherman, Pharisee, sibling of Jesus, bruised reed, flickering wick, whomever, whatever, just come. Jesus welcomes you today at his table. Repent and come and experience his grace. Jesus cares, and this table here today is all the proof that you need. Let's pray. Father, my prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion is very simple. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus, for we are sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.